Why do you think that elite has become such a dirty word in today's politics? Hmm. It really has. I mean, it's it's everywhere and it's hurled from every conceivable angle. I think because it is so capacious, it can devour any subject, any target that you want. And it's most of the time pretty much undefined. It's undescribed. And so you can hurl at your opponent even if they're hurling it at you. That's Evan Osnos. Regular listeners to the political scene will know Evan's voice well from the Friday Roundtable, which he co-hosts along with Jane Mayer and Susan Glasser. In this week's magazine, Evan has done a deep dive into the concept of the elite, what it is, where it comes from, and why it attracts and repels us so strongly, especially in politics. Is Donald Trump elite? What about Joe Biden? You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. So you um, you open your story by talking about Tucker Carlson, who is an heir to the Swanson frozen food fortune and who presents himself, as you put it in the piece, as a dissident member of the power elite. And it seems like you could have just as easily, you know, talked about Josh Hawley or Ron DeSantis, who dropped out of the presidential race earlier this week. Um, how do people get away with talking so much about the elites without getting shamed as hypocrites when they themselves have you know, a wealthy background or a proper education. Well, you hit on something that is really at the center of why I got interested in this. I was struck by the sight of this strange combination of background and rhetoric. So you take somebody like Josh Hawley, for instance, who was educated at Stanford and Yale after a very comfortable upbringing. His father was the president of a bank. Uh, Josh Hawley taught at an exclusive British school, and then he went on and clerked for the chief justice of the Supreme Court, which is where, in fact, he met his wife. And yet he positions himself in his public language as, as he puts it, a critic of the people at the top of our society. And I just honestly sort of started to wonder, at what point does he not qualify as a sitting U.S. senator with that kind of background as a person in the community of elites that he is criticizing. And so that's why I wanted to figure out, well, what do we mean? What are we talking about when we talk about elites? I think the answer to your question is that in some ways we live at this time when people are able to efface their background or obscure it by the ferocity of what they want to say. And so as a result, if you're Josh Hawley or you're Tucker Carlson, uh, if you're saying something in the moment with enough intensity and frankly, malice on the edge of it, people don't spend all that much time to go back and look at, well, actually, where did your money come from? One story that I, I, I've i kind of become um, almost obsessed with ever since I, I read about it, I think was actually Jane Mayer, who you do the Roundtable podcast with, who brought this to my attention. And then I read a, a Washington Post article about it. But I guess there was this time where um, it was several years ago, but basically Tucker Carlson asked Hunter Biden to write a recommendation letter for his son, yes. Buckley, to help him get into Georgetown. And, you know, looking back at what Tucker has said on air, maybe he isn't as hard on Hunter Biden, but like just in general, it seems like kind of the ultimate betrayal to his base in a way, you know, um, not only leveraging this like elite connection to try to help his son get into a good school, but then also leaning on the Bidens. Hmm. Yeah, this was an email that 
it was really an email chain that came out of Hunter Biden's laptop, which, of course, as we all know, has been yeah. uh, excavated and explored by Republican operatives over the last couple of years. And and in that exchange, for people who haven't seen it, you you see this, in a sense, a sort of classic favor trading of a, almost a, a sort of perfect form. Here it is, as Tucker Carlson at the time was Fox News host asking for a friend and graduate of Georgetown to put in a word on behalf of his son. And yet, of course, in public, Tucker Carlson rails constantly. He, he is perhaps our most emphatic and frequent American critic of the elite. It is a, a core element of his critique. And what he often says is that they are as he puts it, mediocre and stupid. And that's his argument. And I just found it to be an extraordinarily audacious thing for him to be saying, given the position where he comes from. And for people who don't know, as you say, he he comes partly from this – there was a lot of money in the family in, in his background. His stepmother was an heir to this frozen food fortune. His father had served in the Reagan administration. Tucker himself went on to a boarding school in Rhode Island that is a classic one of the uh, what's considered the gate function for the upper class in the, in the old-fashioned way that sociologists like Digby Baltzell put it. So in every conceivable way, if you ask ChatGPT to generate an elite <laughs> It would probably give you somebody a lot like Tucker Carlson. And so I found it fascinating that he positions himself and is seemingly satisfying his viewers by doing so by saying that he is, in fact, a critic of the elite. What is like the prevailing definition of elite in America? You know, is it more about wealth or is it because you hear frozen food fortune and it's like there's a way in which even though, you know, the person might be well off, it doesn't necessarily have that cultural cachet that you would have if, you know, your dad is the president of Yale or something like that. And so I'm wondering whether um, over time the definition of elite has, you know, just sort of gravitated toward just being more about culture or aesthetics or education rather than actual money. I think if you boil down elite to its essential meaning in our present culture. It means essentially anybody who has the power to look down on me or to judge me or to manipulate the system in a way that I find unbearable. And for that reason, it's relative. You know, you will hear billionaire venture capitalists like Mark Andreessen use the term elite to talk about people in the media or scientists in government buildings in Washington who, let's face it, are not exactly getting rich by being government scientists. Bernie Sanders, when he uses the term elite, he's talking about corporate titans and billionaires who use their money to influence politics. So it is this incredibly elastic and suddenly urgent term. But in, in a way, in order to understand it, I felt like I had to go back and understand the origins of the term and how it has become used and misused in the, in the moment. So where does the term elite even come from? Interestingly, it really was invented. I mean, it was kind of introduced into the way we use it today at a specific moment. It was the very beginning of the 20th century, and there was a, an eccentric scholar living as a hermit up in Switzerland 
His name was Vilfredo Pareto, and he was doing what we now recognize as some of the earliest statistical research on income inequality. And he started to notice these patterns that you had a small number of people owning the overwhelming majority of the land in Italy. And he was looking around for a term that he could use, and he settled on this term elite from French, and he brought it into his writings. Eventually, it made its way into English. I mean, the word elite came from the Latin to choose. And what he was getting at was that there was always going to be, whether it was in a capitalist society or a socialist society, there was always going to be a group of people who were going to control the place. And he wasn't saying this was a good thing or a bad thing. He was just observing it. So he thought there were elite scholars and elite thieves and elite everything else. And the idea has sort of turned out to be durable enough that we're still resorting to it a hundred and something years later to try to understand power dynamics in our own society. Do you think that um, just the fact that different political parties have seized on a different definition of elite has actually sort of affected us from the policy perspective? You know, it's kind of unclear whether to be anti-elite is to rally for the poor or whether it's to rally against someone who went to Harvard. Yeah. And part of it is that both of those coexist. I mean, it tends to be on the left that when people talk about the elite, they are talking about people with money. I mean, it tends to be people who have made a fortune and are using it to influence politics. And when the right talks about it, they're talking about bureaucrats and tastemakers, the people who are the gatekeepers of the culture. And in some ways, it has clearly refracted, I think, and sort of moved through policy circles. If you look at the way the Trump administration talked about COVID and dealt with COVID lockdowns, a centerpiece of that rhetoric was the idea that these faceless bureaucrats, these elites, were telling you that you couldn't open your business and you couldn't put your kids in school. And that became this core cleavage. And that was one of the things that Ron DeSantis harvested when he went into his presidential one was to say, I am this voice against the ruling class. I mean, he goes into it more so than almost anybody I could find in politics who's actually in elected office. We cannot allow no longer the failed ruling class in this nation to dictate our nation's policies. We have to defeat those individuals and institutions that have caused our economic malaise. Ron DeSantis, in his own sort of dull way, he's given this litany of agents who he thinks are agents of the elite. And it consists of journalists and FBI agents and scientists. And then I I was struck by the fact that he manages to somehow carve out some of his own friends. So, for instance, Clarence Thomas, he makes a point to say, is not a member of the elite even though he is a sitting member of the Supreme Court and a graduate of Yale Law School, he says, because Clarence Thomas does not seem to enjoy the tastes and the culture that Ron DeSantis associates with the elite. I see. So if you go to Yale and sit on the Supreme Court, but you, you know, like fast food, then you're no longer elite. (laughs) I I think that's what he's trying. So it's in that way, it's this kind of Frankenstein term that has come to encompass all of these different things that on their own actually tend to crumble through your fingers. 
I mean, as you mentioned, it seems like Ron DeSantis really made the um, crusade against the ruling class the centerpiece of his campaign. Why is it, do you think, that this just like so clearly did not work out for him? Well, that, those, I think, are slightly separate issues. I, I would argue that his You have to have a good personality class, to hate on the, <laughs> hate on the elite. You, you do, and you have to figure out a way to deal with the problem of running both with and against Donald Trump. I mean, I, I actually thought his, his ruling class critique was probably the piece that had the best chance of taking off. Clearly, there's a market for it. They've corrupted our institutions, indoctrinated our kids, opened our border, weaponized government against us, and destroyed the American dream. Ron DeSantis is the only candidate who's defeated them. We beat the teachers union. We beat Fauci on COVID. I beat Soros. And as your president, I will not let you down. But his problem was not, I think, that people didn't believe that. I, th- I think – I actually think that the reason why the ruling class or critique of the elite is a concept with resonance these days is because people at so many different points in the American sociological spectrum are feeling deprived of agency. They are feeling like our politics doesn't reflect what we really want and it applies to people on the left. It applies to people on the right. And I think that kind of frustration has fed this temptation to believe that that must be because there are others who are operating the levers of power. And of course, on some level, that's true. And, you know, like any good theory, true or false, if it has a kernel of truth to it, then it becomes very appealing to people. It seems like, um, you know, a lot of the people on the right – you know, some of the people we were talking about before and just like the general kind of like populist candidate we've seen more often talk a lot about the elites, but it's kind of just more of the same once they actually get elected. Do you feel like this is something that voters have started to notice and are upset about? Or do you think that this is truly just kind of like a rhetorical thing that, you know, candidates use when they're running? I think what happens partly is that, you know, when you're on the stump and you're you are running against the elite, it's very easy. You have this large attack surface. You know, you can talk about arbitrary decisions by regulators or you can talk about unpopular legislation or what have you. Or you can just take general levels of unhappiness and ascribe it to the people in power, which is, I think, very often what we see these days, particularly when it comes to how public attitudes attached to the Biden administration. But then, of course, when people actually get into power, when they find themselves in the position where all of a sudden, by any objective measure, they are the elite, they have immense power, they end up looking around and surrounding themselves with people who they know, people they went to school with, people who they're spouses are friends with. I mean, one of the little features just beneath the surface of this topic is the way in which there is still a a kind of power elite network of a kind that C. Wright Mills wrote about in the 1950s. He was the one who gave us this language of people moving seats between business and academia and politics. 
I mean, he anticipated a lot of the language that people now use around things like the revolving door. But the fact that he was writing it and the fact that this was really the first time that it was establishing in English the concept of, a, of an elite was a recognition that something had happened, something was different in the way that the government was staffed and that it was becoming a permanent and professional class. He was onto something. And I think for that reason, uh, it's still true. Which party would you say, like, was the first to kind of take advantage of general anti-elite sentiment? Because I know that this is something that we really associate with the modern-day Republican Party, but you also think about democratic policy over time, um, which is so focused on inequality. And so it seems like something that both parties, you know, very much participate in. But I'm wondering which one was the first to really make this something that they cared about and used to rally the base. Well, one of the interesting periods in the history of the elite was actually Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, because here he is, by any conceivable definition, he is an elite. I mean, a graduate of Groton and Harvard, uh, related to another former president of the United States, comes from great wealth. He's now occupying the most powerful office in the land. But what he did was quite accurately say to his peers in the American aristocracy that the United States was facing a level of widening inequality and ultimately a level of political frustration that if they did not address, that the whole project would come unraveled. And we know now that government by organized money is just as dangerous as government by organized mob. It was a really radical thing to do. I mean, there's a reason why FDR was branded a traitor to his class was because he was actually asking people, really sort of requiring people to give up the advantages that they had up to a certain point. And you see as a result during that period, the, you know, the New Deal, which established protections for organized labor and minimum wage and other elements that became essential to try to arrest the slide at the time, it did produce this period known as the Great Compression over the course of the decades that followed, which to some degree did slow down this growing gap in wealth, not for everyone, in particular African-Americans were left out of this. But it's it's notable that it took an elite in the form of FDR to introduce changes that forced his fellow elites to give up something that they would not have otherwise given up. That That's, in a way, I think what makes it so interesting. And, and whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, in some ways, what I think is more powerful is whether you have somebody in a position to say to his brethren, as FDR did, if we don't do something better, this whole thing is imperiled. Evan, I'd like to ask you more about the Great Compression and just about income inequality in the U.S. right now. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You'll hear more of the political scene from The New Yorker in just a moment. So in your piece, you say that, you know, when we rail against elites, you know, what we're actually doing is expressing our resentment of inequality, immobility, and intolerance. What would it mean to actually tackle those things head on? 
that's the great prize of American politics and the great puzzle right now. I think that in some ways, you know, I concluded after the end of this research that when we talk about elites, that it is this big sloshy term that is really doing more to obscure than it is to illuminate what we're really trying to talk about, which is the barriers to social opportunity, the entrenched systems that widen our inequality rather than narrow it, and ultimately on a cultural level too, the sense that there are people who are governing what is the culture that can be said and not said. And those are the things that are all competing within this concept of elites, and they all require very different policy solutions. I mean, to give you a, a practical answer to things like what would it take to really address this feeling of barriers to equality, barriers to uh, social mobility. I mean, if you just take as one practical example, the year I was born, 1976, it took a, something like 50 hours of labor to pay for a year of education in a state university. You fast forward to today and that number has Balloon the sheer number of hours it would take to work to be able to get a year of college, which then, of course, that year of college equates to all of these other social dividends that ultimately make up what we mean when we talk about being in the elite or not in the elite, that that kind of thing is a, is a functional barrier. And the same thing goes with what it takes to buy a place to live in this country. Um, in the mid-70s, it just took many fewer hours of labor to do it. And so when you look at programs like things that address college tuition costs or forgiving college debt, those are bank shot ways of trying to address what is ultimately at the core of the feeling of social immobility in this country. In your piece, um, you look at the work of Peter Turchin, an academic who has written about the data behind political chaos in history. And Turchin argues that if too much wealth is concentrated at the top, societies can topple over. What does that mean, you know, to topple over? And how are we not already there? Yeah, this is one of the things that got me interested in this topic was Peter Turchin is an unusual scholar. I mean, he's trained as a computational biologist, meaning he's somebody who actually spends most of his time looking at what animals and plants are doing and the way that they are growing or receding in nature. And years ago, he also started digging into historical patterns, basically using these huge databases of historical events. And so one of the things that he and his colleagues have done is they go back hundreds of years and they say, what are the patterns that have contributed to social chaos? What are the things that brings a country from a state of stability to war and insurrection? And one of the patterns that they identified was this, this realization that at a certain point, once you have too many people in a position of competition for powerful positions at the top, that they begin to fight amongst themselves. That's this concept that he has of intra-elite conflict. And you know, we are right now in a period, I think we all know this, it's backed up by the data many times over, of extraordinary inequality. And you hear sometimes, well, what would it actually take to bring this system back into a more manageable level of inequality? 
And what the history suggests in the work of Peter Turchin and others is not very encouraging. What it says is that it tends to be that societies begin to cave in on themselves, that powerful people begin to fight, usually in politics, but then ultimately with force. And one of the examples he gives is the American Civil War, that in the run-up to the Civil War, you had, in a sense, two groups of elites in Turchin's analysis. You had Southern elites who relied on slavery and the sale of cotton to build their wealth. And then you had Northern elites who made their money mostly from manufacturing and steel and other kinds of industries. And at first, these two groups of elites were fighting in politics. But at a certain point, when they weren't achieving resolution through politics, the southern elites brought the country to war. And it was it was that process that was running in the background of our politics that ultimately led to the terrible turn in American history that was, from Turchin's perspective, a kind of perfect case study of what happens when you have too much wealth, too much power and not enough outlets for it to be resolved in politics. So you do give one, you know, more optimistic example in your piece of political chaos averted, which is this, you know, great compression that you mentioned earlier, um, which took place from 1925 to 1950. And inequality went down and the number of millionaires went down. How likely does it seem that we could have another great compression now, 100 years later? Well, in some ways, you know, the, the great compression was the object lesson of how you avoid these worst conceivable scenarios. And uh, Turchin points out it's it's rare, but it's real. It happened. And it happened precisely because at the time you had elites in America who looked around the world, particularly at the Bolshevik revolution, and they said, well, that could happen here. That if we continue down the path that we were on, that ultimately the United States would be undone by by a revolution from below. I mean, at the time, you have to remember in the U.S., you had extraordinary acts of unrest. I mean, there was a, a bombing of Wall Street and there was the largest coal mine strike in West Virginia, which was, in fact, the largest labor insurrection, the largest insurrection of any kind since the Civil War. So there were elites in American life who were looking around and saying, well, where's this headed? You know, I think we, we're going through a period now when there is becoming a more explicit conversation about inequality in this country. I mean, you've seen it happen over the course of the last decade. I mean, the way in which we have had a more robust scholarly conversation, it started probably with Thomas Piketty, but ultimately it's widened out into the public culture. And you see the success of politicians on the left who have made this question a centerpiece of their politics, people like Bernie Sanders, who generated a huge following by talking about inequality and oligarchy in ways that people hadn't for generations. So in some sense, I think that it is becoming a more realistic path, a more plausible path that the United States could fashion policy solutions that do not continue moving in this direction of ever-increasing opportunity and wealth at the top while everything else becomes unstable. And do you think it's more likely that that would come, you know, from leftist policy, like you mentioned Bernie, but I assume that this would be more of a, a progressive movement? Well, what I actually think is that what recent political history tells us 
and it's also true if you go back to the 60s, that very often you have a progressive end of the political conversation, an activist wing, which is generating ideas, agitating, nudging. And then you have the mainstream politicians. Let's call it what it is. It's the Joe Bidens. And in the case of civil rights in the 60s, it was LBJ who was in a position to use their power, their relationships, their facility with the tools of lawmaking that ultimately allowed them to be more progressive presidents than even their own instincts would suggest. That's always been the quirk, I think, of how these things happen is that it's not the authentic, credible, progressive president who is able to make the great breakthrough. Often it is the person who is coming um, from a position where they don't generate the same antibodies uh, from people both in the center and on the right that they're able to punch through that crust. So like Biden trying to cancel student loan debt. Exactly. Or Biden passing legislation on drug prices, things that had been pursued for decades by more progressive politicians, and it hadn't been achieved. Those are meaningful steps in the direction of actually creating policies that help people to bomb. Now, I know there will be people who are listening who say, but hold on, you know, we're not addressing the core engine of wealth production in a capitalist society, but that doesn't mean that you should ignore the meaning and the consequence of policies like forgiving student debt or helping people afford drugs that have a, a practical, immediate effect on their capacity to live their lives. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about AI and the role of technology, which you touch on in the piece as well, like sort of how AI changes the calculus here. Yeah, AI is a big scrambler in all this. I mean, we have these systems that generate elites. We call them Ivy League universities or private equity firms, or you have all of these ways in which we are every day grooming the next gatekeepers of society. But all of a sudden, we have this technology and ultimately the people controlling it and financially backing it who are in a position to have a tremendous influence on how the labor force is organized, what kind of jobs exist and what kind of jobs are destroyed. There's a saying that goes around Silicon Valley these days that there are going to be two kinds of classes under the AI society. There will be people who tell the AI what to do and there will be people who are told by the AI what to do. And in a sense, it's a preview, I think, of, of a new class structure that is in its own way supplanting what was the dominant 20th century class structure defined by, in economic terms at least, you had the old line industrial elite and you had the old line media elite. And we've watched as these are being edged out by new players. And in a way, the AI aristocracy has yet to be identified. But if there's one thing I've learned from going back and looking at the history of what we mean when we talk about elites is that there will be one. There will be an AI elite. Yeah, it sounds kind of horrifying, but it's, um, <laughs> yeah, it, seems, it does seem likely. Um, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, after spending so much time looking at, you know, the various definitions of elite and how it's changed over time and the ways in which the different parties use it, how you think about Donald Trump and Joe Biden in terms of whether they 
they are elite or not elite and, you know, how we should think about them in terms of their status, their their wealth, that sort of thing. It was always a very strange thing, I think, to to look at Donald Trump in terms of his relationship to the elite. I mean, for years, he had used that term constantly as sort of marketing language around himself and his business as he was always touting the most elite hotel or the most elite golf course. And it was so obvious that he was desperately trying to will himself into this center ring. And, and in some ways, he was explicit about his own frustration with the fact that even though he had this huge inherited wealth and he was a businessman himself, that the fact that he came from Queens and was not from Manhattan and was was elbowing his way into Palm Beach, it was a huge piece of who he was that he felt like he was on the outside. And it was a big part of his political energy was the sense that his supporters would see in him this very strange combination of qualities. I mean, one of the things that people always said about him was, this is from his supporters, was that he was a quote-unquote blue-collar billionaire, which is a nonsensical concept, except that it actually describes him. And in some ways, it was because he was so clearly mocked and rejected by people with cultural power, you know, people in the big magazines of New York, let's be blunt, that it was part of his pitch. Now, the irony is that once he got into the presidency, it turned out that after months of saying that he was going to take down the political elite and the media elites and all this kind of stuff, he started saying, actually, now we are the elite. You know, when they talk about, they talk about the elite, the elite. Do you ever see the elite? They're not elite. You're the elite. You are the elite. He would tell crowds in... South Dakota and Arizona and places like that, they're not the elite. You, my friends, he said, you are the elite. And it made me realize that really what he was what he was always trying to do was just he was trying to be the elite. He wasn't trying to get rid of anything. He was just trying to replace it. And what about Biden? I, I mean, Biden is legitimately and authentically from outside Washington. It is a crazy thing to say that. I know that because he's been here for 50 years. But when it comes to the subtleties and people who are professional Washingtonians will recognize the difference. He was not the one who was invited to the most coveted dinner parties. He was over all those years in the Senate and in ultimately in the vice presidency. In the presidency, he was just on the outer ring. And it's some of the tension, frankly, between Biden and Obama world is that there was always a feeling that the Biden crowd felt like the Obama people didn't have that much respect for them politically. They said, you know, you guys are a little bit of a blunt instrument. We are the next generation of politics. And so when when Biden ultimately got into the presidency, some of the atmospherics that were going on was this was a little bit of him and his advisors saying to the Obama generation, we did it too. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Evan. My pleasure, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Evan Osnos is a staff writer at The New Yorker and a co-host of the political scene's Washington Roundtable. You can read his story, Rules for the Ruling Class, in this week's New Yorker. And tune in to hear him, along with Jane Mayer and Susan Glasser, every Friday. 
This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with help from Julia Nutter. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Enjoy your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. From PRX.